You are listening to episode number 26 of The Love Noteworthy Show. Welcome to The Love Noteworthy Show, the guide to creating a business, brand, and life you love, taken from the lessons of female entrepreneurs, influencers, game changers, and change makers who have already made it happen. Welcome back, everyone, to the Love Noteworthy Show. One of the great architects, Frank Geary, once said that architecture should speak of its time and place, but yearn for timelessness. And much like a photograph, architectural design records the details of specific moments in time. But unlike a photograph, the physical structures go on to have a life of their own, becoming a central and functional part of countless people's lives for hundreds, if not thousands of years after they were built. I don't think that we, as a society, place enough emphasis on the implications of a new building being constructed in our city. And if you think about it, something like the Tarsian temples that were built in Malta that were constructed in 3250 BC, that is like over 5,000 years ago. And in contrast, in Canada, which is a relatively new nation, I mean, we became... or. I mean, had our confederation in like 1867. Um, Our oldest buildings were only constructed in the early 1600s in Quebec City. And that's kind of like a 5,000 year difference. So nevertheless, when you think about architects, what do you picture? Courtney and I were talking a little bit about this before the interview, but as someone else more elegantly put it, most people would think of someone who is male, pale, and stale. And what I mean is like, (laughs) yeah, a middle-aged white guy that enjoys drawing and sketching um, and is striving to become a certified architect. And many architects are said to be young architects in their 40s and reach the height of their career in their 60s or 70s. But today, my guest is quite an anomaly, which is precisely why I could not wait to have her on the show. Courtney Brett became the youngest certified architect at the age of 24, becoming the youngest licensed architect in the history of the American Association of Architects, making headlines just a few short years ago. And today, as the owner of Casper and Brett Architects, Courtney practices architecture with the purpose of improving the built environment and conversely, the lives of the people who inhabit it. Her extensive experience with complex programming specialty materials, equipment, and furnishings allows Courtney to efficiently and accurately design spaces to meet clients and users' everyday needs. So welcome, Courtney. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Okay, so I alluded a little bit to the background of you, but why don't you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself growing up? When did you know that you wanted to become an architect? Sure. I knew I wanted to be an architect the minute someone explained to me what an architect did. I, uh, when I was a kid, I loved um, drawing, but I wasn't drawing necessarily people and trees and the things that I was seeing. I was drawing uh, plans of the houses we were living in or the school that I was going to. I really was drawing the way to think. And um, my parents explained to me that, you know, someone's job was to build this environment around me in the best possible way. And um, that stuck with me that, you know, it's a very basic definition, but it it stuck with me. And um, I was probably about 10 years old at the time. And then for my 11th birthday, they gave me craft paper and scales and triangles, all of the drawing tools that are technically used by architects. 
and I was hooked. That was the best gift ever. So from moving forward from, from that date, I've learned more and more about the profession, obviously, over the past 15 years. And I'm lucky that I've fallen a little bit more in love with it along the way instead of the, the inverse, which would have been, um, I guess, so much more disappointing. But the more I learn about it, the more excited I am to be a part of it. That's amazing. So your parents, did they, do they have a background in architecture at all? Or how did they identify that? Neither one. Um, Actually, there's not an architect in my family at all. My mom was a stay at home mom and my dad was in the air force when I was growing up. And, um, they were so encouraging of us to follow any dreams that we had and all of the dreams that we have. Um, so Everything from, you know, I, I later really fell in love with entrepreneurship and decided I wanted to pursue um, business ownership. And, you know, of course, I wanted to be a parent at some point. There's all of these dreams, and my parents were really, um, really encouraging, not only that I could do whatever I wanted to do, but I could do everything I wanted to do. That's, I guess, a real gift that I'm thankful for. Yeah, that's so key. I. I definitely hear that from a lot of very successful people is that their parents just really believed in them as a child and gave them kind of the support and resources that they needed to facilitate their growth at a young age. Um, Absolutely. Or on the converse side of that, um, somebody like came from hardships and were kind of stubborn and determined to turn their lives around, so to speak. But why don't we talk a little bit about you and your education now? I read that you completed high school by the age of 14. How did you do that? How did you fast track your education and complete all of your architectural requirements so quickly? Um, That's a little bit of a long story, but I have, we guess we have time for the highlights. Um, (laughs) I had completely, um, I would say average American public school education um, as a kid. I was, um, like I said, I was a military brat basically. So I went to school in a lot of different states, but followed the standard public school curriculum. Um, The story goes that I was a pretty anxious test taker. So I was understanding the material. I liked a challenge and I, I, and I liked school, but my parents realized that, um, taking the SAT, and I don't know if, if you've got a similar um, entrance exam in Canada, but taking the SAT, those scores would be um, really critical to getting into the type of challenging college program that I would want down the road. So my parents enrolled me to take the SAT as a seventh grader and said, we want <laughs> you to understand the experience and not so that when you have to take it for real, you won't be nervous. So I basically said, this is you don't even have to open the scores. We just want you to have the experience of what a standardized test is like. So a couple of years from now, you're not nervous going into it and you'll be comfortable and, and potentially do better. So I went in and of course was calm as can be since it didn't matter. And um, I guess did quite well for a seventh grader since I was so calm at the time. And I don't even remember what those scores were, but at the time educational um, institutions could basically buy the demographics and test scores of everyone taking those exams. And there were two programs at the time in the United States who were offering early college entrance to um, young students who met certain criteria. So Mary Baldwin college in Virginia has a program that um, allows young women um, to enter their program, fully, you know, live on campus, 100% um, college education, starting at a very young age. So I, you know, just as 
almost a fluke, this wonderful opportunity shows up on my doorstep when I'm 13. And it sounds like, you know, being invited to go to Mars. I, I was <laughs> probably terrified might be too far to go, but I, I couldn't even imagine a life not at, at home or, you know, all of that was such a big thing to consider. So I thought about it for a year. My family thought about it for a year. And um, just by, I guess, the circumstance of the time, my dad got his last set of military orders to move that following year. So I really was faced with a choice. I could try this amazing and exceptional program that would move me away from home but allow me to start college at 14, or I could move with my family and start high school all over again and make new friends and, and start that process over again. And by this point, I wasn't as challenged as I would have wanted to be at the high school I was in. So I took a deep breath and took the plunge and moved away from home. And technically I dropped out of high school and started college then at 14. And the other women in this program, I mean, they changed my life. They were all smarter than me and more accomplished. And they had the same visions and goals and the ideas that they could be a big part of changing uh, the world and ways to make it better. And it really set me on the path um, that, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to be on, but being inspired by other, other people that have been, I guess, a part of my story is, has really helped me get where I am today. That's amazing. So speaking of learning, can you maybe explain to our audience a little bit about the process of becoming an architect? It's quite time consuming. Sure. <laughs> It is. It is. And most people have no idea um, anything about the process. So I'm absolutely happy to share. Um, both the United States and Canada share an accreditation system for architecture schools. There's 112 in North America um, accredited licensed schools for architecture. Those programs are a lot like a normal bachelor's or a master's degree, um, but they're considered professional degrees. So you get a BARC or an MARC. Um, and that's five to seven years of school. Uh, and once you've completed that education process, you move on, uh, at least in the United States, and then it, it splits ways a little bit with Canada's system. But in the United States, our program is called the Intern Development Program. Um, and that program requires almost 6,000 hours of very focused inter internship opportunity um, and practical experience. So that generally takes three to four years. Mm -hmm. If you are um, able to get each of those specific areas of um, practical experience back to back. So that experience would be anything from um, understanding the layout of urban planning very early on, working with cities to figure out the best way to lay out their streets and their landscaping and their buildings to um, very technical detailing of how structures stand up and how air conditioning systems work and how electrical wirings run to um, really construction administration and the law and legal aspects that surround, um, you know, every part of how a building is developed and all of the players that are a part of it. So you have to learn and sort of have this practical education at every step along the way. And once you've completed that, you take a series of exams called the Architects Registration Exams or the AREs. Um, the current system has seven exams. Um, some of them are four or six hours long, and they test that practical and theoretical knowledge that you gained over your 
you know, six or seven years in school and you're three or four years on the job. So this process takes um, the average architect 10 to 12 years to complete. Which is insane. I can't even believe it. I know a lot of people um, that I formerly worked with when I was working in an architecture firm, they would kind of do some sort of design or engineering or geography or urban planning background um, and do their bachelor's in that and then be like, oh, I want to be an architect. So they'd need to go to an accredited school to do their master's of architecture. And they're like well into their 30s um, or later than that and still an intern architect with the company. So Right. Well, and that's something I'm hoping we can talk about later is this idea that there's a very singular track to becoming an architect. And there's so many avenues yeah, yeah, yeah. to becoming one. And so a lot of people become an architect so much later because they start that track later in their careers after they've amassed this experience or this knowledge in a related field. Yeah, I think the ongoing joke too is um, with a lot of architects, they're like, why am I doing it? Like, why am I trying to become an architect when I could become a doctor and make like <laughs> five times as much with like the same, if not less schooling? <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's funny. But um, why don't we tell, talk a little bit more specifically about your story. So you became accredited, um, as I mentioned, you were the youngest licensed architect in the history of the American Institute of Architects at 24. So what path did you take? And what kind of drove you towards pursuing this goal? Like, was it a goal to be the youngest person? Or did it just sort of happen that way? It just sort of happened. So if you do the math, since I started college at 14 and achieved my license at 24, it took me the same 10 years that it's taken everyone else. So I wasn't really on a fast track when it came to the architectural education. Like I said, that's such a singular path that there's not really speeding up. You actually need every single component along the way. So um, for me, I, like I mentioned, I started my education at Mary Baldwin, but I knew I wanted to be an architect, and they didn't have an architecture program there. So I was able to transfer into an architecture program at another school mm. two years later and, um, and completed my education. I um, was recruited by SOM in New York right after I graduated, and that was a phenomenal experience. So I got to really learn every part of that um, process. We talked about all of the practical elements of your education in this world-class firm that was doing really inspiring projects. Um, and then um, took my exams. And like we talked about earlier as well, I was I really wanted to have my own firm. So from there, I, I jumped into, um, with a little bit of time, jumped into starting a company. So you worked for a few years with an architecture firm after receiving your certification. Where where was that tipping point where you realized that you wanted to run your own company and you wanted to take that massive leap to quit stable career and dive into your own thing? Sure. I've I've been interested in how businesses work and how how I guess it's it's been a hobby or a real interest of mine since I was a teenager, really understanding how um, organizations grow and thrive the same way individuals do in so many ways. So I've always been interested in that. Working with a large firm solidified that idea because my, um, my experience there really helped me decide that I wanted, I wanted the control over the projects, over the dialogue. I really wanted the opportunity to make change on my terms. Um, so 
my experience with the firm, like I said, it was really specifically to get my, um, my practical education that I needed. And, um, once that was complete, um, the moment really came where I realized that I didn't want to get too comfortable. I was ready for the next challenge. Mm. Um, so I, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a tipping point, but, um, I guess it's slowly built. Same with the fact that I've always wanted to be an architect for a long time. I've really wanted to be a business owner. And I knew working within a, a large firm would give me experience in um, a variety of areas. But one thing that I wouldn't learn from working with a large firm is the decision making at the top. So I was insulated from um, how they chose clients, the types of projects that they would choose, mm-hmm. how their billing systems worked, um, how they addressed liability and risk. All of these these decisions, I knew that I would need to um, be in a smaller environment and learn from a, a smaller company to actually have the well-rounded education I would need in order to be a very good architect and also a very good business owner. Okay, so when you decided to take the plunge, what were sort of the first few steps that you took to starting the business? And you started your business in a different city from New York, correct? That's right. So um, when I decided that I, I was ready to make the steps and start a small business, um, I realized that um, specifically to my industry in New York, there are a lot of barriers to entry for um, new firms. Um, mm. And I'm sure you can imagine that would yeah, be the case. There's already very built up. There's a massive establishment that really controls um, through a series of government agencies, how construction works in the city. And for me, I was really ready to get engaged at a smaller scale. I had done a lot of work in New York with Architecture for Humanity in New York and humanitarian efforts like that and talking about how design is important to all people. And I knew that I would be able to get a little bit of a faster start in a community where there wasn't as big of a barrier to entry as New York. Um, On the personal side, my husband um, owns a business, and that business is based in his hometown in Alabama. So it made sense to, while I was finishing um, my last exams and really getting that last bit of education about how companies work to relocate to where his business is, And um, so naturally, the firm started in that sort of random small town in Alabama. (laughs) So what were the first, um, like in the first three months of starting your own business, what what was like a day-to-day or how did you start acquiring clients? Um, How did you kind of set up your office and business and be, and have a good understanding of just how to, yeah, start making money essentially? Sure. I'm... I love businesses that are systemized. So I really started by exploring systems and processes that I thought would make me efficient and successful long-term. So I really wrote out how I planned to hire people, the types of projects that were important to me, the avenues of, of um, experience that I needed to continue growing in. And I really, truly started... Um, with very, very small steps. Nothing was too small at the beginning. So um, I would help other local architects with projects that they were too large, or the projects were too large for their current staffing, or 
I did a lot of consulting early on with um, companies that didn't need an architect but didn't understand how to interact with a city um, architectural review board or a city planning committee. So we'd go in and help um, developers and small companies making changes understand how to interact with the authorities that make decisions about how they build or or add an addition or um, little consulting projects like that. So those grew into larger consulting projects. But I really launched the firm and filed the paperwork and got my license in um, May of 2012. So a lot of this real, this prep work happened for six or eight months before I was really ready to say, I'm going to start a firm and I'm going to pursue this mm-hmm. um, full time. So a, you know, a lot of that work happened before the day that my license arrived in the mail along with my business license. So it sounds really quick to some people when I say that that was May and June, I got my first real client. Um, so that's that's incredibly fast, but you have to appreciate yeah. that so much effort went into getting me to the point of actually advertising as a firm. And so... Um, through one of our consulting acquaintances, um, I met a, uh, I guess our first client who had a very, very large project um, in a town about an hour from, from where I live. And I remember vividly going to interview for this project. I was so nervous. I was far overdressed, you know, I've got my this New York wardrobe and yeah. I'm going to the beach in Alabama to interview for this project with um, some incredible people. So I'm overdressed, I'm nervous, I'm a little bit fidgety, you know, that, that anxiety wells up a little bit. And what that client would, who is still a client of mine would tell you is what struck him about the interview was not any of those things, but that I am overwhelmingly and to the, to the point that it might be too far. I'm so excited about what I do. I believe in it, and I think that it's important, and it has value, and I love being a part of it. And so, you know, it really struck him, the first part of this big project, um, it's nine acres, it's a big master plan development, mm-hmm. but the first component was to be a restaurant. I had never done a restaurant before, and I've done schools, I've done hospitals, I've done very tall buildings and very small houses, I've done many things, but I've never done a restaurant. (laughs) And so, you know, I go into this thinking, I'm at a huge disadvantage. I have no restaurant experience. But I really went into it and let let them know up front, I've never done a restaurant before, but here's what I would like to get out of this process. I want to meet your chef. I want to know exactly how he uses his kitchen. I want to know your operational manager. What matters to him in terms of efficiency? You know, I want to know where you source your food. I want to know all of these things about you because – getting this project right for you specifically and the types of clients that you hope to attract and this specific location where we're going to build, that matters to me. And so that is what stuck out to them. They have, they had the choice of a number of architects, both in large cities and in smaller towns in our area. And a lot of them showed up with big portfolios of, of restaurants, but you know, I, I showed up and, and told them without qualms that I've never done a restaurant, but I really, really want to know your restaurant. And that's what made the difference. Yeah, that's so interesting. Like, I definitely, it's so great when clients will select passion over experience. And I don't think that's always the case. But at the end of the day, like, if you're truly passionate about what you're going to 
what you're doing, like you're going to be relentless with making sure that it's your work is absolutely perfect or at least like above and beyond the standards of what the client is expecting, right? Absolutely. Well, and you had you had mentioned before, you, I guess you had, you had wanted to know, since I'm not what most people picture as an architect, if I found pushback from prospective clients. And I have found surprise in the past that my experience has been without question that the people who embrace the passion with the growing experience have been by far the best clients. They've been the people who have a similar vision and want to get the same place with their architecture that mm-hmm. I want to get with their architecture. And a lot of the people that have a hang up or want to challenge exactly what what it is that we're offering tend to not be the best clients for us. They might be great clients for other people, but I've really learned the hard way over the past two and a half years that there really is such a thing as a good fit client. And we've achieved some amazing things with the clients that really fit um, our vision and our goals for how the built environment should really embrace the people that, that inhabit it. Yeah. That's so interesting that you say that. Um, I found the same thing in uh, my line of work as well. And it's just, it's so interesting that, when people are nitpicky over costing or just like really specific details and it ends up being kind of a straining uh, experience for both parties. Um, And it's just such a different experience when it's, like you said, a good fit and you both have the same values in mind and it just is so fluid, the relationship. And it ends up both parties being happy and passionate and having like a better result from whatever product or service that you're offering. No question. Yeah. So, um, one question I did want to ask you is, do you think that it's important to have a specialization in architecture or are there specific industries that you really wanted to focus on providing architectural services to? Oh, that is a great question. A lot of people do specialize in my field and I've got, I guess, not mixed feelings, but my thoughts on specialization are very focused. I think that you can specialize and be very, very, a very good specialist, and you can specialize and not be a good specialist. And I know that that, that seems so general, but to me, whether you're practicing as a generalist or a specialist, you can never stop learning. So, and, and hospitals are great examples. So there's so much research-based design that has evaluated over the past 10 to 15 years how patients uh, respond to different types of treatment rooms, how um, operating rooms can be more effective, how we keep these places clean and safe and and bright. and, And all of this research, I believe that the best specialists never stop engaging with that research and and building the knowledge for that specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same goes with generalists. I believe that you can, your practice can do everything across the board as long as you're willing to engage with all of the right components to make sure that your project meets the needs of the people um, who are a part of it. So I, I know that's not really an answer to your question, but I think some of the best practices have, um, they have generalist architects as many of their project managers, and they have specialists that consult on specific projects. Mm, Um, That's that's one of the best project, um, I guess, methods I've seen is a a mixture of both. Yeah, that's great. Um, 
In terms of staffing, when did you realize that you needed to hire staff for your firm and how did you select the right candidates? Because I know like hiring your first employee can be like horrifyingly it was, scary. <laughs> it was overwhelming. I, um, I realized after I got that first project um, that I absolutely needed um, a draftsman on my team. So I needed someone who was trained in um, the drawing and the technical detailing to supplement the amount of work that I could possibly put into one project as one person. So I learned, like I said, I, I started in May, had this project by June, and by the end of June, I realized I absolutely needed help. So I um, went to one of our local technical colleges and put out some feelers to find some people that were available. And like I said, I'm very systematic. I thought I had a system that would help me um, make sure that I was getting the best fit employee for, for what I needed. And what I learned through the experience was that you have, you have to have a little bit of gut involved too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you can do so much research into the best way to interview or the best way to, uh, really learn about what a person can offer, but, it's very, very difficult to discern in an hour or two meetings or a coffee that a person is going to be everything that you need them to be um, in a specific job role. So yeah. what, I've, what I've learned through the experience is that, like I said, the system works great, but it takes a little bit of gut too. And then what I've started using and what has been most helpful to me is since that first employee most of the staff that I've hired, I offer a a contract position or contract work before I would offer a an employee position or a full-time job. So mm. uh, the way that that works for me is that I am able to see for 10 or 12 weeks exactly what their work product is, um, exactly how they interact with members of my internal team and people outside of our team how they react to criticism, how quickly they grow and adapt to our standards. I'm able to see all of those things. And for the potential employee, they're able to see if they enjoy the work, if they enjoy interacting with our team, if they're willing to adapt to the standards that that we uphold. So it it gives us a a really healthy trial period um, that can give both me and the potential employee an opportunity to evaluate it for a good fit. We're such a small company that that's been really helpful to me moving down the road. It actually gives us enough time to know um, each other as, you know, a boss and an employee before we really take the, the permanent plunge of, of an employee relationship. That's great. Um, and how many uh, projects are you, is your team currently working on or how many is like a, on average, do you work on? Um, we have on average about 10 projects going at a time. Architecture projects take in many cases years. So those projects are at many different stages. So right now I've got an active project in eight different states. Um, and a number of those are construction projects that will tail off by the end of the year and by January. And, Several of them are brand new, just at the concept stage that won't even see a shovel in the ground until next year at this time. So my staff is, oh yeah, it's fantastic. So my staff has to adapt to being responsible to different parts of the process as that work fluctuates at different, different stages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, in terms of getting clients, 
I know, or at least from my experience with working at a firm, there's kind of two different ways that you could do that. So one would be applying like through RFPs and then presenting um, and getting selected as a client. And then the other was just through kind of referrals or just contacts or essentially shaking hands. So how important is networking for getting new clients? And do you have any strategies on how one can build their network? That is such a great question. I I think about networking the same way that I think about mentoring or having a mentor. For me, that's one area in my life that I don't actually apply a strategy to. For me, my network is all genuine relationships. So very, very slowly as I've met new people through just very organically through having the business, I've built the relationships over time that have turned into natural referrals or into repeat clients. So for me right now, we are a 100% referral-based business. Um, And that, that has kept us, as you can see, quite busy in our first several years. Um, with continuous staffing, but I'm, I'm very conscious of responsible growth. So at this point, I'm not pounding the pavement. I'm not submitting RFPs. I'm not actively trying to um, meet people outside of, of our small network, but I've had the real opportunity to build some fantastic relationships within our industry and within client groups that have been so beneficial and, and mutually supportive that really do grow into projects and referrals and new relationships very, very naturally, with very organically. So right now, I really don't need to apply a marketing strategy quite yet because we, we really are, are growing at a rate that I feel comfortable with right now. That's amazing. Like 100% referral based. Oh, yeah. I, it's <laughs> It's exciting, and you know, a, a really great example is um, this first project that we were talking about. Um, it had a big hiccup at the very beginning. We realized that we couldn't build um, the, the this big project that we were planning on because of uh, an issue with our seawall. And without going into it, the city basically put a moratorium on on any large construction on this particular property until the state could intervene with some state funding. So. We worked out this great project and then realized we had to backtrack and this property was left empty. And we were also disappointed at this beautiful, beautiful piece of, of beach that, that was just roped off and we wanted people to have access to it. So we went in and we put this little food stand in just with the intention of making sure that people were energized and, and enjoying the space. They'd have everything they needed to go out there and just fish on the pier or grab a quick sandwich. We just mm-hmm. wanted to bring life to the space. So the reason why I bring up this story is because we opened this restaurant on the beach in the off season of November um, <laughs> a couple years ago, and the line was by January. This is an outdoor food stand. The line was out the door and around the corner and down the street. So they've had so much overwhelming success with this food stand that it has grown into an elaborate restaurant on the beach, and Amazing. that's that's the kind of really amazing and and wonderful success I feel so fortunate to have. You know, we started out, you know, my eyes were not bigger than my stomach. Like I said, nothing was too small. I I believe in in doing architecture the right way. And and as long as, as that was upheld, I'm happy to work with anybody who needs the help. And so 
we, you know, I started with this, this small vision, envisioning that, you know, down the road that we would have something big and spectacular and, and amazing in terms of a company. But I started with a small vision, and and so quickly, uh, we, I just found myself overwhelmed with the opportunity and the work, and it's and it's it's been a, a whirlwind. I'm I'm just I'm still reeling. I'm amazed that it's happening to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's unreal. Um, one of the things that I had talked about a little bit earlier is the fact that you're very uncharacteristic as what people would perceive to be a typical architect. And as we were talking a little bit about offline, you were saying that um, the statistics that came out last year in terms of how many architects are women, it's only like 18% of the architectural community are actually women, which, um, again, as we were discussing, a lot of other industries that have seen a big big, uh, difference between the male and female populations have come to more of a parity now. So... Are there any specific policies or things that you think could be implemented to really encourage more women to pursue an architectural uh, degree or become an architect and put them in more power positions in architecture? So like I said, it's a complex question when it comes to institutional policy, but there's a couple very interesting facts to know. You're absolutely right. Only 18% of licensed architects in the United States are women. But what's surprising is that the number of people graduating from architecture degree programs is nearly equal men yeah, and women. I've read so that. we're seeing the loss of women between that step that early step in the career and this final achievement of the title. So um, the problem we have all of the details to know when the attrition is happening. So there's two things that really strike me. Um, the first is a paradigm shift. We we treat the profession of architecture is very black and white. You're either an architect or you're not an architect. Mm-hmm. But there are, there's this constellation of careers in education and government and nonprofit that are really thriving because people who are trained in architecture school are really trained in creative problem solving on a technical and operational level. So a lot of people will graduate from architecture school and what has been painted as an attrition from our field is really the gain of a sister field in some way or another. So I think that it's important to celebrate the people that are using their knowledge, not necessarily for building or construction projects, but for efforts, um, like I said, in education and government are two major sectors that are picking up people with education with education and architecture. We should celebrate people that are taking that background and that education and applying it to something that is meaningful and taking on other types of leadership roles. So I think part of this is a paradigm shift to understand that there are lots of leaders, men and women, that leave the track of becoming an architect but take on a leadership role with, with the knowledge that they've gained. And the second is we had, what we had talked about earlier about the past being so singular I think that it's important to consider some alternate tracks to licensure. The the common, um, I guess, explanation for why so many people leave the field before they uh, reach the license is that for for most women, the critical childbearing age in the mid-30s hits right around the time that you're completing your final exams. And so a lot of women find themselves in this profession specifically still making the quote-unquote big choice between family and career. So I think that it's important to 
to acknowledge the schools that have started co-op programs so you can get your practical education and your theoretical education in an overlapping fashion mm. um, and and really start thinking about other ways that we can get the same value and the same end result of the, the education process. But perhaps, like like you said earlier, perhaps it shouldn't be longer than it takes to become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... So I think thinking about alternate paths to this career might be really valuable. Yeah, and there must there there are tons of other support positions where you can do like a batch of architecture but never actually do your certification. Like you could become a designer or a technologist or something like that, right? And I don't Absolutely. know if those numbers that, are definitely... Problem yeah. that vocabulary barely exists. There are so many people that are a part of our firm cultures that are renderers or mm. they write specifications for products. And I, our culture understands what an architect is and does, but there's, you know, in a hospital, you understand that there are physicians' assistants and there are nurses, and um, there are all you know, all kinds of technical lab employees and radiologists, you know, there are so many different types of doctors. And I feel like that's such a great comparison because there are so many types, not only of architects, but of, of other staff um, contributors that, that no one really has the vocabulary to acknowledge how much work is going into these projects. That's not just the singular architect pulling them off. Yeah, I think another thing too is just in your under or in your high school education, like I specifically remember um, there would be career uh, opportunities or universities that would come in and present um, in our like senior years, right? So I specifically remember this one school and what they offered was like a graphic design certification, interior design certification or degree, and another kind of like planning style program. But I don't ever recall like any school or education or anything ever talk about architecture ever <laughs> as like a, a career opportunity. Like it was just something that I didn't even realize as an opportunity when I was graduating from high school. So, And isn't that amazing that so many people know what an architect is, but so few people actually know what an architect does. Yeah. I know so many architects that are, and it, it's, I, fully acknowledge that it is the vein of architecture that I practice, so that's why I know so many of them, but I know so many architects that are dedicating their careers to um, building low-income housing and Mm. providing humanitarian relief after disasters overseas. I mean, work that it's, you know, it's not for the rich and it's not fancy and it's not in architectural magazines, but so many of my colleagues are really taking the idea that what they do needs to make a difference to a whole new level. And it's, it's so amazing to see. And it's so inspiring that I, that I think it's an important story to share. And it's no different talking about this. I have a great example for the alternate career um, path. Um, I've got a great friend from school who has spent the past six years in um, all nonprofit positions. She's taught at um, a, an architectural education facility. She has done low-income housing work. She's been part of the AmeriCorps program. She spent six years dedicating her design expertise across the board to people who need her help. 
and she is not eligible for an architecture license because she hasn't met all of the IDP requirements that are part of that internship program we were talking about. So mm-hmm. all of these ideas start, I guess, coming together for me. Yes, we need an alternate path, but I, I think it's important for people to know that so many architects are doing humanitarian or social justice work with the education they've got. Yeah, it's that's great. Um, let's switch gears here, but I just want to be cognizant of our time together. But sure. um, let's talk a little bit more uh, practical stuff that's more generalist. How did you overcome negative feedback in your career um, that naysayers have thrown your way? I have learned over time that laughter and pity together are the best medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, n- negative people or negative feedback, it affects everybody. I mean, I, I, I need to admit that I have, I have met people or been in experiences that have absolutely been overwhelming emotionally. But what I've learned over time is that, uh, you know, you just have to sometimes laugh those experiences off and feel badly that, that someone might even live with the, you know, an idea that is as, Here's a great example. When I was still a teenager and I had just been accepted to this this college program, I went to share with one of my teachers how excited and, and nervous and you know, all of the emotions about the fact that without a high school degree I had just gotten accepted to college and mm-hmm. I was I was going to give it this huge shot. And this teacher asked me why I would want to get ahead why would I fast track my education? And exactly. So I've had moments like that where it was such negative feedback. And I thought at first, you know, confused, but then you just have to think, Oh my gosh, how sad is it? If that's the way that you really feel that your world is so small that you can't imagine that there would be the possibility of a, of an opportunity like this. So I, I give the same feedback to, I have a lot of, women tell me that they've, especially in my industry, that they've experienced some small or large form of prejudice because they're a woman or because they're young. And, and I, I like to let people know that I have had those experiences, but I don't let them define any part of my career. Because if you step back far enough to think about someone having a a prejudice against you or having a small mind about an issue, it's, it's really their problem. So I try to laugh it off and think, gosh, that's really silly. And I feel really badly that, that you can't imagine a world outside of that idea. So I, I, that's the way that I try to tackle it. I still sometimes get frustrated, but in my experience, laughing and, and just acknowledging that it's coming from a place of, of small mindedness or misunderstanding is, is the best that I know how to offer. Yeah, that's great advice. I think, the thing too is a lot of times if it's unfounded negative feedback, it's a lot of times not reflective of you. It's just more so reflective of their state of mind and just absolutely like issues happening in their lives. So, um, and the second thing too, um, one of the things that I've really tried to, and I'm still working on this, but trying to shift my mindset to be more conscious of is just really listening to kind of the negative or constructive feedback from people that I really value their opinions from and then not worrying about what any, anybody else says. <laughs> Absolutely. So those relationships that I keep talking about that have really enriched my business and my life, negative feedback 
from anyone within that small network is always constructive, right? Yeah, There's always exactly. something to be learned from it. Absolutely. No because question. they're passionate about what you're doing and are looking out for your best interests, not trying to exactly. hack you down, right? So Exactly. Um, well, and a lot of the challenge is figuring out which camps people fall in, right? I mean, I think I see a lot of people struggle in figuring out if it is actual productive feedback or if it's, you know, coming from someone that doesn't have your best interest at heart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so a few more questions. What do you do to sure. stay motivated? Or is it just innately part of you because you love what you're doing? Or do you have certain uh, systematized things that you can do to kind of reinvigorate your passion? Yeah, I, I am a very goal oriented person. So if I have a lag in motivation or I have a rough day, it usually takes me sitting down and thinking about where I want to be in two months, where I want to be in two years and where I want to be in 20 years. So, and I do, I have bad days. I think everyone who owns a small business has bad days. Mm-hmm. My husband's joke is that we call it the American dream, but some days you wake up and it's the American nightmare. I've had <laughs> those days as a business owner. So I understand how, I mean, that is so, it's very rough to have a day where it's just not going your way. And so for me though, I can just sit down and very effectively evaluate this day may have set me back so that I might not reach my two month goal, but it hasn't set me back where I will miss my two year goal or my 20 year goal. So for me, it's, it's really just sitting down and thinking I have made four steps forward today, even if I've made two backwards, you know, it's, I I just have to stop and sort of get out of the moment and think long-term where I'm headed um, in order to, I guess, get over any kind of lag in motivation. That's a great advice. And as a business owner, how do you manage your time? Do you feel like you have a good work-life balance? Like, do you take weekends <laughs> off? Have you created oh, any rituals? Yeah. If you meet someone who figured that out, I would really like to talk to them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've yet I, to. <laughs> I, I, and really conscious of balancing my time. I think the best analogy for me right now, though, legitimately in my life, is that my time really swings like a pendulum. So mm-hmm. I'm lucky. Sometimes it swings towards my personal life, and sometimes it swings towards the business. I really love my business, and I love what I do. And I also love my family and my hobbies and, and the life that I've got outside of work. So I'm lucky that regardless of where the pendulum swings, I, I'm happy. So for me, though, sometimes it really takes concentration and focus to make sure that I get the right kind of balance that I need. And my current tactic, and I don't know if it's going to work or not, but my current tactic is to plan out time in advance for, um, things that are important on either side. So I will block a day in my calendar, whether it's a business development day that I need to be totally offline or it's a personal day that I need to be totally offline. I'll schedule both in my calendar. So right now that's working for the times that I need something on one side or the other that's critical that can't be interrupted. But otherwise I, um, I think I'm, I'm slowly being able to at least predict the pendulum so that I'm, unprepared when I have an an overworked week or a a leisurely week. That's great. That's great. Um, Do you have any rituals that you do to kind of stay sane on the really crazy weeks or what do you do to relax? (laughs) Um, Well, I, I love, I just love telling people mind ruts are really bad for creativity. 
So for me, I, I have to relax to be good at my job. I, I like that. Um, <laughs> so um, I am really, I'm sure you can tell, I'm really inspired by phenomenal people and, and really great places. So I love traveling. Um, I sometimes just need to get out of my head and go explore how um, one of my friends is working out a particular issue with their business or with their careers or um, just get completely outside of the bubble of what my particular design problem or business problem is. And I just, I, I travel, I read everything I can get my hands on. I, and I, I like to exercise my brain in ways that are unusual to me. Um, I know nothing about music, but my not so secret new hobby is trying to learn how to play the cello. Cool. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really bad at it, but learning <laughs> is the process of learning is, is just so much fun. So same with cooking. It's really relaxing. Yeah, I'm to with really you on that. Focus on, yeah, to measure everything out carefully and, and compose something like that. That's, Oh, I'm that not like that. <laughs> really takes my focus. Yeah, so I, I I mess up tons of stuff in the kitchen, but that's fine. I get flour everywhere, and I love the process, even if it's not edible. So for me, it's really about sometimes stepping away from the problem at hand and being inspired by a solution or a person or um, just a different way of thinking um, before I, I go back to, to what I'm doing. That's funny. I'm like the opposite. I'm kind of like a freestyle cook. Like I love just figuring out what I want to make and kind of beforehand being like, what ingredients would go really well together to make this taste good? And I like never measure anything. <laughs> I just kind of like throw it all together. Oh gosh. Well, I grew up underfoot in my mom's kitchen. So there's some things that I actually can make without a recipe really well, no problem without measuring. But that's like restricted to pies and you know, things are really terrible for you. So when I explore <laughs> in the kitchen and I'm trying to get myself to focus on something else, I'll usually take a recipe and, oh boy, I've had some really great turnouts and some major flops, but it's all been fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. I um, Lately, my thing has been trying to do like vegan, gluten-free style cooking and especially with desserts, like they I would say more times than not do not taste very good <laughs> that are like sugar-free, gluten-free, like dairy-free vegan desserts. I have got a rockin' recipe for vegan sloppy joes. I will have to send to you. (laughs) Okay, done. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, All right. (laughs) So my final question for you today that we ask all of the interviewees is, what is your number one tip for others on how they can be more love noteworthy in their business and or their life? My number one without question is be a change maker. I don't care what path you're on, what obstacles you're facing. Um, For me, that's the most important thing. I don't want to stagnate. I want to make sure that I am constantly adding value to the the lives of the people that I touch. Um, But as a secondary, because I I just can't restrict it to one, um, I think that it's sometimes really important to not have a plan B. Don't have a plan B. For me, I... So many points in my education and my early career, I had every reason to quit. I had every reason to walk away. Mm -hmm. I, you know, was scared or worried or doubted that I could do it. And in those instances, I could not give myself an out because I had a goal and I was going to reach that goal. And 
giving myself an out just allowed me to focus on the doubt instead of what it was going to take to achieve what I wanted to, to achieve. So I, the, I guess the most central to, to my life and, and the tip that is most important to me is that people stay focused on, on, on making positive change. But as a backup in, in those dark moments that I like to tell people not to have a plan B, just, just keep focusing on, on where you're headed and, and you'll be really, really happy. You didn't let yourself get off track. That's amazing advice. I haven't heard that before. It's so good. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Courtney, for being on the show. I really appreciate thank uh, you, you spending your time. Me. I've, and, I've enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, the very last thing is that as we were talking about offline, uh, you had mentioned that you're going to have an amazing kind of women focused, architecturally savvy blog that you're going to be launching very soon. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit more about that? And we'll link you up. At- Absolutely. I am really excited. I, um, I've been asked over the past 12 months or so, so many really valuable questions from young women who are pursuing careers in architecture or pursuing careers in small business. And so I started writing down these questions because I, I really was inspired that people had such great questions really about how to move forward and, and thankful that I was able to provide some insight for it. So the questions fall into a couple key categories that are sort of mashed together with my interest in the, in the new uh, blog. But we're going to talk about everything from women in architecture to entrepreneurship and business, um, how the business of architecture works, if that's something you're interested in. Um, and then really starting to break into the nitty-gritty of how architecture and culture work together, um, how kids in architecture interact, um, and a little bit more about how we specifically practice and our practice model is is a little bit unusual and we're proud of it. I'm very excited. That sounds amazing. Well, we will definitely link that up um, in the show notes. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And I hope you have an amazing week. This has been another episode of the Love Note Review Show. 